Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast and videocast, brought to you by the Institute for the Future of Education of Tecnológico de Monterrey. I am your host, Jose Pepe Escamilla, IFE Associate Director. In this episode, I had the pleasure to talk with the co-CEO at Holon IQ, Patrick Brothers, about the edtech market, the startup ecosystem in Latin America, and the three scenarios for higher education that Holon IQ describes. Enjoy. Hi, Patrick. Welcome to this episode of Editrends podcast and webcast produced by the Institute for the Future of Education of Tecnológico Monterrey. We are very happy to have you here. I would like first to briefly describe for our audience what is Holon IQ and also what are your current goals and what are you aiming for in education? Fabulous. Thank you, Pepe. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, as Pepe said, Patrick Brothers, co-CEO of Holon IQ. We're a global impact intelligence platform and we work with governments, universities, firms and investors around the world to help power decisions that, that matter. Uh, we've had a really big focus on higher education over the last few years, um, mostly because much of the team is from higher education on the public and the private side. Uh, and of course, before COVID, uh, higher education was moving through uh, a really big change and transformation. And COVID, of course, has just amplified that um, 10, 100 times again. So um, we've spent a lot of time uh, over the last while pulling apart the trends that we see happening, talking to universities around the world and just um, helping everyone make sense of what we think might be the future of higher education. Thank you. Now, so you say that uh, higher education was already uh, changing. I, I am a little bit more pessimistic around that. I, I think that higher education has not changed a lot uh, on the last <laughs> years, and I want it to change faster. Nevertheless, I yeah. recognize that the COVID situation that was very bad in in many different ways. One of the good things, uh, or the good one of the good outcomes, is that it shows that when we face something that is urgent, uh, we can align ourselves to change and go faster. No? Yeah. Uh, well, that, yeah, uh, I think that's right. I, I think just jumping in, I mean, before COVID, there was a there was still a really strong conversation about how do we increase access to higher education? How do we reduce the cost of higher education? And there was a lot of you know, in the general consumer market, a lot of criticism about um, about the return on investment of higher education. And, and of course, digital transformation was happening to universities as well. And we saw, you know, MOOCs and we saw micro-credentials and things like that. But um, so, I mean, I remember really clearly before COVID and it's interesting how many new people have come into the conversation in the last couple of years. I mean, it's so great to have fresh ideas. Um, but I, I agree with you. You could take a pessimistic view that higher education hasn't changed for hundreds of years. And, you know, I, I, I'm trying to balance that a little bit with there was some really innovative things happening. Like Tech de Monterey is a great example. There, there were amazing initiatives with 
you know, <clears throat> ideas about how to solve all of those challenges. But there's no doubt that COVID just reset the, the, the whole landscape. Thank you. No, thank you for, for what you think about Tech Demo Terrain. It's uh, uh, very, very nice to have the opinion for, coming from you. So during the, the, you say that during the COVID, the pandemic, it's something changed. Uh, what are the things in the ethic market in particular that changed uh, because of the crisis? Yeah. I think what COVID did is, without getting too academic, is it isolated a whole bunch of variables and made us really rethink what is higher education. Um, and in education technology, it, it obviously kind of put education technology at the forefront because that was, for the most part, the only means of connecting with learners um, around the world. And so some of the big trends that we saw was um, what they would call in ed tech direct to consumer, where uh, ed tech companies were connecting directly with learners, not through an institution to support upskilling and support corporate training. I mean, in the workforce side of education technology has been massive because companies have been looking for ways to support their staff around the world um, without being able to be in physical um, training programs and the like. And of course, for for uh, for full-time students or part-time students studying at a university, I mean, it was just, uh, uh, you know, I, we've been talking forever about how lectures are um, boring and not great pedagogy. And it forced us to rethink about how do we deliver learning remotely and how do we deliver it in a way um, that is more engaging. But of course, COVID also revealed some really poor parts of education technology too. And so, um, yeah, I mean, we've seen a massive growth though, overall in education technology, just enormous. It has been um, double what it was before, at least in in almost all parts of the world. Um, so, so big, big, big changes I'm sure everyone's feeling. I I, um, I remember a piece of um, um, a report that you published uh, a couple of years ago, that during the last decade, uh, venture capital in EdTech grew 14 times. And, yeah. uh, and the expectation at that time is that during this, from 2020 to 2030, the growth will be threefold, three times. So yeah. what, what's, what will be your new... Uh, oh, yeah. Um, that was... That wow, that was conservative. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's so funny because when we when we published that analysis, we had a whole bunch of people saying, "Oh, you know, that's that's a bit aggressive," and I'm, you know, this is a bit of a bubble, and I think it will it will we arrive into plateau or something like that. <laughs> plateau, exactly right. And you're right; it started at the beginning of last decade. Five hundred million dollars globally was invested in edtech, and we finished the decade at around uh, seven, eight billion dollars. And so something like 14 times. But then along came 2020, 2021. 2021 may be close to a 20 billion dollar investment like which would be 40 times 2010 in terms of the level of investment. And back when we looked at 2018 and 2019 and thought, I wonder if they are uh, bubbles that will burst. I mean, we just we we just had no idea. So you're right. Like we forecast, I think in 2019, we said, "Oh, look, we think 90 billion dollars will be invested in edtech over the next decade." 
and then the year after, sixteen billion was invested. Now this year will be nearly twenty, so you know half of our decade forecast is already invested. So it's just a whole new level. It's just a whole new level. So and and uh, so forty uh, is four zero now. Forty forty times forty times the the, the growth uh, just in the last year. And uh, but what do you th do you think that we should expect for the next ten years? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think there's two schools of thought, right? There's one school which is along the lines we saw before, which is maybe we're going through a temporary COVID surge, and we'll see some level of, you know, moderation, and it will still be very high compared to what it was before COVID, but it will moderate. <clears throat> the other school of thought is that we're only really just beginning to grasp how extensive this digital transformation will be and that the surge we're seeing right now is a short-term surge that will be part of a long-term transition. I mean, education technology is still only about 4% of total expenditure in education. And that is a, that's a very small amount. And so it doesn't have to really um, be much bigger um, in terms of that percentage to, to double in size from a, from a dollar perspective. So, I mean, I, we, we, we think, you know, it'll be, it'll be somewhere in between is always the safe answer, but there's no doubt there's some expenditure happening right now that doesn't need to be repeated. But at the same time, I think a lot of teams are getting together and saying, wow, you know, now that we're starting to get our feet back on the ground, we need to think about our digital transformation and that will give rise to further investment again. Yes, yeah, so uh, that maybe the most plausible uh, scenario is that this is a search, but after the search, we will not come back to what we had beforehand. So it will be the spark of a new kind of growth, not as dramatic as the one that we had lived during the, the pandemic now. Yeah. And uh, what about um, Latin America? What can you tell us about the EdTech uh, startup yeah. in Latin America? What have you learned? <clears throat> I can tell you a lot. <laughs> Last week, we announced the 2021 Holon IQ LATAM EdTech 100, which is the 100 most promising education technology uh, companies across Latin America and the Caribbean. I mean, last year, when we did it for the first time, we set out to map 50 companies because we thought, you know, LATAM is a very dynamic and very large market, but doesn't have as much investment as other parts of the world. What we found in our investigation is there was a massive ecosystem. And so we ended up announcing 100 last year. This year, um, a lot has changed. We've, and from an investment perspective, the investment in education technology just in the first three quarters of 2021 is already three times what it was the prior year. So we're seeing a lot of demand from schools and from universities. We're seeing the investment community in Latin America start to think more progressively about supporting social and economic outcomes, and they see the opportunity as well. Um, again, the innovation is all the way from early childhood and pre-K through school, post-secondary. There's more vocational um, education, which, you know, Latin America has less vocational education than other 
parts of the world, but we're starting to see more apprenticeships, more workforce training, and then just as everywhere else in the world, we're seeing the big companies in Latin America turning to education technology to upskill their their staff and their workforces and and find um, employees as well. It's it's very exciting watching education technology in Latin America. Thank you uh, for your insights. Very very interesting. The increase uh, that you have seen uh, uh, in the area in just one one year. And and you're right. Uh, investment is not uh, abundant uh, in this region. So it's good to see that there is an, a threefold increase in just one year. Uh, is very promising. Um, at the beginning of this year, you updated uh, a study about the possible futures of higher education. You published uh, yeah. scenarios for, for yeah. higher education. Can you tell us about these scenarios and if you think they're still uh, uh, holding up after these months because of, <laughs> of the rapid changes that we're living? Yeah, so we love scenario planning because it forces you to think about what are the underlying changes that might happen that we're all unsure about, the uncertainties. And each of the scenarios we developed represented, if you like, an extreme. And when we talk about scenarios, we don't think that any one of those scenarios will be what plays out. What we are trying to provoke is a conversation between executives teams about what if, what if this scenario started to play out? How would we be impacted? How would we be prepared? How would we support the learner? So the three scenarios, the first one was called- So let me just uh, interrupt you, sorry. Uh, the, the scenarios are are not possible futures, you know, they're they are mainly like a food for thought for educational planners. Is that what you're saying? They, they are possible, but they represent extremes. Okay. They represent extreme endpoints. And so um, they shouldn't be read in, you know, literally that this is the outcome that will happen. What they're trying to demonstrate each of the scenarios is what would happen if, if the world started to play out in a very specific direction. So the three scenarios were, were, were called education state, practicum pivot, and learning market. And let me just really quickly explain each one. Um, education state represented essentially the public sector and government deciding that it needed to double down on its role in driving post-secondary learning and higher education. And it did things such as starting to recognize micro-credentials as part of the formal accreditation frameworks. And that's very significant because that would mean universities would start to provide, say, programs that were nationally accredited in countries around the world down to about 150 hours of learning. And that seems to be the threshold that the Europeans and many other micro-credential bodies around the world are starting to rest on is a minimum level of learning of about 150 hours to call it a micro-credential. So education state represented, you know, the, the, the governments of the world saying, you know, we want to ensure that higher education remains a government-funded, predominantly public-driven market, and we're going to offer micro-credentials. We are going to restructure universities to do that. The second scenario was called practicum pivot, which represents a very big change in the structure of learning in that universities tended 
to now offer three month to two year programs as the predominant undergraduate um, product, if you like. And so obviously that's a dramatic shortening of a, a bachelor's program that we that we see around the world today. Um, governments would start to split research and teaching out to try and bifurcate those two roles for universities um, as part of that process as well. And we would see a very strong adoption of apprenticeships and of internships being woven into those much shorter programs at universities as well. So you would you would perhaps leave school, do three months at Tech de Monterey, and then you'd go out to work and you'd work for a year. And then you might come back and do three months top up, and then you go back to work again. And so instead of it being a very lumpy post-school program, it would be shorter, more iterative, and woven into your work. And the final scenario called learning market essentially represented the deregulation of higher education where the private sector upskilling uh, you know, came in, accreditation frameworks would not be really as relevant because employers were recognizing credentials provided by anyone, not just universities. You know, universities would no longer, if you like, you know, dominate higher education. The government in this scenario says we're agnostic as to who delivers the learning in higher education because we want to really drive innovation across the public and the private sector. And so learning market represents, you know, more of a market-based approach to, to higher education. So the, the three extremes are education state, which is, you know, it looks a lot like it does today. The government doubles down on funding higher education, although we do see the adoption of micro-credentials in formal accreditation frameworks. Practicum pivot is much shorter much more linked programs into industry apprenticeships and the like and learning market is if you like a um, free market for post-secondary upskilling and skills and and probably represents even shorter programs um, again coming out of school and, and getting a role so they were the three scenarios for higher education and those uh, very interesting uh, the, the scenarios, as you said, they are extreme. But I imagine that there can be a combination of, uh, of course uh, of these yeah. scenarios. Do you think there's one of them that has the most likelihood to somehow happen, either completely or yeah. partially? It's super interesting, and I think it really varies by region around the world. We asked our higher education network. Uh, what was their preferred scenario and what they thought was the most likely scenario. And the most preferred scenario was practicum pivot, which was essentially um, universities really compressing their programs down in size and weaving them much tighter into industry. Um, that was the, the most popular. The... Um, the, the highest probability was um, still education state where we're seeing around the world, say, take the US as an example, uh, a lot of policies around community college and a lot of policies around, you know, strengthening higher education institutions, although that's difficult for most governments around the world who don't have much money, um, having just stimulated their economies post-COVID only 10 years, 20 years after, um, you know, major financial crises around the around the world as well. So 
yeah, it, it will be a blend for sure, as you say, Pepe. Yes, yes, um, uh, very uh, interesting uh, food for thought. Uh, these uh, three scenarios. Uh, I, I would like to change the subject now to um, uh, once again go to tech, no, uh, to educational technology, and who uh, benefits more from the use of technology. So, in general, uh, the people that benefit traditionally benefit from the use of technology are the elites of people that have access to the technology or they are provided this technology in their uh, educational institutions. Uh, but uh, I, I wonder what's your opinion on who is, who will be better, uh, who will have greatest delta of learning, or learning outcomes from the use of technology? the elites or the underserved populations yeah i mean i don't think the elites need any more help right so um i i i think that there's a there's definitely there's definitely a cohort of education technology which relies on expensive um hardware and very high levels of bandwidth that uh, only, you know, a privileged few, relatively speaking, can access. But <clears throat> reflecting on the, the EdTech 100, there's a lot of teams there who are very focused on the underserved communities and, and minorities and who are thinking really carefully about uh, what, what they could do. Technology as well, the way we define it, doesn't necessarily mean high-tech software. Technology means innovation. Um, much as the, the wheel itself represents technology a long, long, long time ago. Um, and so that's the spirit in which we think about education technology is not necessarily high cost, fancy software that will only serve to increase the gap between those who are privileged and, and, and others, but rather trying to um, stimulate more thinking and innovation about how either teams can directly support learners or they can support institutions to better serve learners around the world. I mean, uh, Africa as well is another economy where we're seeing innovation uh, that is, it's not software, it's not mobile phones, it's not apps, um, innovation to help reach you know, very disconnected communities and help upskill them as well. And <clears throat> uh, we've seen a lot of, even in LATAM quite recently, we've seen government announcements. One thing COVID did is it really uh, raised everyone's awareness about the digital divide, about access to connectivity, bandwidth. Um, there's plenty of um, ed tech trials, government sponsored around the world of just handing out iPads to people that uh, just fail because that's not really a sound way of supporting learners of just giving them devices, right? And and I think we're learning that these these lessons through through time as well. So um, things like I can think of you know teams that are supporting women in gaining coding skills to help um, achieve better gender balance, but also to help with the participation of, of women in the technology economy across Latin America as well. And, and a lot of that is not about devices and it's actually not about serving those who are privileged either. It's about 
finding people who don't necessarily have access and can't afford a degree, for example, but who might be really well suited to learning coding or user experience or digital digital marketing or even even cybersecurity, which is becoming a big issue for, for everybody. Yes, I, I, I agree with you. There is a um, um, paradox uh, that, uh, mm. in my opinion, uh, uh, these kind of tools uh, can be more advantageous for the underserved communities than for the communities that already have access to that because they are privileged in somehow and have a lot of uh, cultural capital, now let's say in their families, uh, etc. Yeah. Uh, so uh, many people wonder if uh, uh, a government should invest in technology for those communities or they should invest in other things. Uh, so uh, yeah. that's, that, that's what I think is an interesting question. And well, uh, we, uh, in the studies we have made with uh, underserved communities, we have found that in general, uh, with the right tools, uh, those communities, they don't have to be very uh, high tech, right. expensive technologies. Uh, the gains that you obtain are very hard, very, very strong because they uh, they come almost from the bottom, let's say. You know? So uh, those investments yeah. have a lot of uh, return on, uh, there's yeah. a lot of return on investment on those, but uh, you have to find the right way of doing that. and. Uh, and, uh, and, and then the, the problem is how uh, we close this access, not only to internet, but to this technology gap and this, uh, I would say digital competencies for learning uh, gaps uh, for the students and digital competencies for teaching uh, for, for teachers. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a hard problem uh, uh, to solve because we're talking of massive numbers of students and, yeah. and uh, teachers. You, you raised a great point just now in terms of, <clears throat> I think one of our biggest priorities is actually supporting teachers and helping teachers understand what options they have, how to best utilize them. You know, teaching with technology is a little bit different. Like the fundamentals of pedagogy are the same, but you go about things differently in the classroom in order to achieve those outcomes. And I think supporting teachers is a great example of where we should focus and not necessarily race ahead at, um, at, you know, handing out computers and tablets um, without having thought through how we can actually upskill um, these communities and, and what is required. There's, I mean, there's hundreds of stories around the world of classrooms being full of dusty 3D printers and, you know, a hundred iPads over in the corner that can't charge or whatever because people didn't think about how to how to support that 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 kind of digital digital capability so yeah i'm all for upskilling teachers i think that could have a, a really massive multiplier effect exactly i i, I agree with you and then i i'm asked sometimes that uh, if uh, computers technology artificial intelligence would uh, replace teachers and i don't think that that will never happen uh, at least not in the uh, next 10 years I believe that uh, there's, it's very important the work that teachers do, and and it has to be uh, uh, cherished. You no, know, and and, uh, and uh, we we have to uh, make th that uh, uh, profession, that vocations, be something that is uh, well seen in our society, and, and yeah. give more capacity uh, training that, to them. And that's really important. 
note to make is, and we've found in our research as well, when we did our, you know, large study called Education in 2030, we had five scenarios there. And the most popular scenario by far was called peer-to-peer, which was essentially people wanting to learn from their peers and from, from other people. And in all of our research, we've found nearly every learner has a preference to learn hard things from another person. Um, we, we all want, I want my phone to teach me things for sure. Like I, I, I wish it could, it was smarter and could prompt me with knowledge and help me, you know, remember things and, and, and prompt me with interesting facts. But when it comes down to learning something really difficult, I, absolutely, I would just love to have an expert to, you know, guide me and ask questions and get unstuck from problems. And that's what we find around the world. Yes. So I, I brought up the, the subject of AI in, in education. I myself in one of my previous lives did a PhD in artificial intelligence. And uh, I've seen uh, that during the last decades, the, the promise of AI and the failure to deliver. <clears throat> we are talking a lot about AI in higher ed and in education in general, but, but uh, uh, do you think that the promise of AI is for real this time? I don't know. I I think we suffer a lot from overpromising for sure, and optimism about artificial intelligence. I mean, you know, not not as detailed as you, Pepe, but I've spent a whole bunch of time on natural language processing, and you know, we're great at computers are great at you know literal translation, but you know, Siri is still hopeless. Like I, I can't talk to my devices. They don't understand me. Um, how are you going to have an intelligent interface that, you know, gets anywhere near a human level? So I'm, I'm really optimistic about the use of AI in very narrow domains. Like I've seen some fantastic um, use in, in testing and in assessment and in gamification and in trying to engage the learner in behavioral domains um, and there's some fabulous uses of AI, but the, the best are often not even labeled AI. They're teams who are just focused on achieving the behavioral outcome or the learning outcome versus the teams who are waving big AI banners um, and, you know, promising, promising things that are very, very difficult to, to achieve. So I'm optimistic about uh, if we can get AI to a level uh, of maturity I'm really excited about how we could embed it into the learning process, but a little bit pessimistic, maybe having followed artificial intelligence for decades as well um, about how realistic it is that we would get to that level in the next five years for sure, probably 10. I mean, have a look at COVID. We don't need AI to solve the challenges that we've got right now. We need our universities to more, be more digitally capable to have basic systems you know, to support learners with basic mm -hmm. learning. That if we did that, we'd be 10 times what we are today, right? And so it's, I, 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 COVID makes me think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs is like all the way back down to the bottom of like, we just need to do the essentials and we need to do them digitally. And once we're through that, then we can start to build up the pyramid again and get to fancy applications like artificial intelligence. Exactly, exactly. Yes, I, I believe that there are, uh, as a sector, uh, economic sector, education is very, 
very little digitized. No, it's not very uh, strongly right. digitized. And, uh, and <clears throat> AI comes later, maybe in the path, and we could be, let's say, cautiously uh, optimistic. No, not 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 a lot. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I believe that AI should be more like an assistant to the professor than a standalone thing in education. It should be something that helps the teacher, the professor to do better his work, um, giving him more her more opportunities to understand his students uh, and understand uh, what's the level of uh, engagement and learning they are so that you can uh, somehow uh, personalize uh, activities, um, not with AI, but in person, no? So that you can you can teach them, you can do peer learning, et cetera, uh, with the help of those tools and not not as a standalone tools, no? So that's yeah. uh, something that could be more realistic uh, because yeah. of the narrow applications of AI in general. Yeah, and I, I, you know, something I think about a lot is, I mean, firstly, with AI as a label has, just taken over like a lot of what we can need to achieve we can do with just calculations and computations um we don't actually need when you really dig into ai you know a domain expert like yourself um mm -hmm. we, we don't necessarily need that much superpower right now but the other thing is like the evolution of learning science like ai requires metrics it requires calculations and learning has been quite unquantified for a long period of time and whether it's you know behavioral psychology or um, all of these studies i think one of the good things it's doing is pushing us all to codify and quantify learning science more and try and advance that discipline um, at a level where we can we can explain pedagogy in a in a more quantifiable and scientific way than perhaps we might have, you know, 10 or 20 or 100, 100 years ago, the, the magic of putting people in a class with someone who's just incredible at sharing knowledge and engaging learners. Yes, that, that, that's very, very interesting. And uh, when you were talking about that, I remember, um, I don't know if it's an article or a quote from George Simmons that say that the um, empowerment that will give us a world that combines human and artificial cognition, no? So that's, yeah. uh, I think, it's a, there, there are uh, very interesting opportunities in, in that world we Definitely. Uh, well, uh, thank you, Patrick, uh, for, for your time and for sharing with us your thoughts on the future of education and also for sharing Holon's IQ work and knowledge on higher ed. Uh, this talk has been very interesting and, interesting and enjoyable, and it will surely be of great value to our audience. We look forward to discuss education and technology matters with you again. I expect that will be very soon. Thank you <laughs> very much again and Thank have you. a great day, Patrick. Thank you, Pepe. Wonderful to be here. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edit Trends producers, Esteban Venegas and Christian Guijosa. Post-production, Alejandro Sanchez. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.